Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. ADH TV. The program has saved the nation. I'm David Flint, and the program is produced by Charlie Noble. My guest today is uh, well known to viewers. He's uh, Gregory Copley, who's had an extraordinary career and makes a significant impact into many th- important areas of international debate and discussions. He's been the advisor both to governments and uh, to the military and to experts for almost five decades in relation to all sorts of matters concerning world affairs. He's the president of the Washington-based International Strategic Studies Association and the the Sahidi Center for the Study of Monarchy, Traditional Government and Sovereignty. He's the author of over 36 books various papers and lectures, and he is a a superb contributor to international thought. And uh, he has been ennobled by the uh, Ethiopian government. Welcome, Gregory. Great to be with you, David. Now, we wanted to start with something that the Albanese government has decided to do, and that is it's... uh, is handed over the control of the port of Darwin to a corporation, Landbridge, which is under the control of the uh, Chinese government. What is your assessment of that? Well, it's certainly part of the People of the Republic of China or the Communist Party of China's uh, ongoing program around the world to gain control of commercial ports, both for commercial reasons and for prepositioning of the PRC for better access for trade and for naval matters. So this is uh, not unique. I mean, we we see the the Communist Party's of of China's interest in not only the port of Darwin, but the uh, other ports in Australia, like Newcastle and the like, uh, ports in Sri Lanka, in Greece, uh, and so on and so on, and United Arab Emirates, uh, uh, and uh, as well as, for example, Djibouti and the like. So we see that around the world. And of course, the the, le- the 99-year lease on the port of Darwin uh, occurred uh, quite a few years ago uh, and has been circumvented to a large degree by the Commonwealth government's decision to build a new port in Darwin, which will uh, far exceed the capacity of the old port, uh, and that will be suitable for uh, trade and naval purposes. It's going to take a lot of work, uh, but it will circumvent that that 99-year lease on on the older, smaller port there in Darwin. Have they started on the new port? I believe that a lot of work has been uh, begun, certainly in the planning stages, uh, but uh, that's 
also been a, a critical area of concern for the United States government because it prepositions a lot of US military assets in the Northern Territory and Darwin is a, a critical port uh, for for the US Navy and the US Marine Corps uh, and the air, air bases in the, in the area uh, are being used by US Air Force as well as Royal Australian Air Force uh, combat aircraft. So yes, the um, the plans to circumvent the, the People's Republic of China are well underway and it's questionable too as to how much impact uh, the PRC can exert using its control of ports in Australia. They certainly were able to gain great leverage in Sri Lanka when they took over the port and airport which they'd financed there and the Sri Lankan government couldn't uh, afford to pay back the, the loans and investment which, which went into uh, those facilities. But this is a very different situation in Australia. Uh, we do see, however, that there are many uh, ports around the world, including, by the way, uh, in Israel even, uh, as well as in African ports, Kenya uh, and Namibia and so on, where the People's Republic of China has attempted a global ports strategy to give it a preemptive capability to move naval vessels in and out and to also to guarantee their control over their supply lines because let's face it the, the PRC is absolutely dependent upon supply lines for commodities from around the world as well as uh, to ha have uh, shipping connections to export Chinese goods around the world. Uh, I, I think that uh, the, given the collapse of the Belt and Road Initiative in meaningful terms and the collapse of the economy of the People's Republic of China, uh, we are seeing a, uh, a weakening of the long-term threat from Chinese control of some of these civil ports. Can you imagine uh, what the reaction would have been in Australia, say in the late 30s, had the government of Australia approved a lease of the port of Darwin to, to a Japanese corporation? Well, there's no question that that has to be foremost in the minds of, uh, of, of Australians at this time. We should also bear in mind that the People's Republic of China's expansionist strategy, particularly through the Indo-Pacific region, has very much studied as a template the Japanese Greater Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, which guided the uh, expansion of the, of the Japanese empire in the 1930s and 40s. So uh, we have to expect that Beijing has learned a lot from the, the lessons of, of pre-World War II and World War II uh, and will not make the same mistakes as the Japanese. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the, the the question is whether the People's Republic of China has overreached itself already uh, and has reached a point of economic collapse, which makes it very unstable at this point, uh, which, which means that it could do things which are unpredictable and dangerous, uh, particularly in the South China Sea vis-a-vis -vis the, the Philippines, where they could come into easy confrontation, not only with the Philippine Navy and Philippine Coast Guard, but with the US Navy and the Royal Australian Navy, uh, among others. We also see the fact that uh, they, the ports strategy is not only for the major ports like uh, Darwin and Newcastle, but also for smaller fishing, supposedly fishing-related ports in uh, Papua New Guinea and the like. Uh, and this is really a prepositioning of intelligence assets and influence assets in, in these various countries throughout the South Pacific and Indo-Pacific. Prime Minister Albanese has been making much over the last few days about the 50th anniversary of the visit of Gough Whitlam to Beijing. Was that a significant event or was that just an indulgence of uh, Mr Whitlam? It certainly wasn't... Uh, it didn't have the impact of the Nixon visit. Well, no, and, and uh, neither did um, Pierre Trudeau's earlier visit to Beijing to establish uh, relations between Canada and the People's Republic of China after Jimmy Carter basically threw the Republic of China, that is Taiwan, under the bus. And Gough Whitlam followed suit. It did have an impact because it... it sent a message uh, to Beijing that it had made a breakthrough in the region. And, and in fact, 
I think Gough Whitlam's visit ultimately was far more important in the Indo-Pacific than the visit by Pierre Trudeau, uh, the father of the current Prime Minister of Canada, uh, to Beijing. Although the Canadian Labour uh, or left wing basically saw this relationship between uh, Ottawa and Beijing as something of a special relationship uh, which signified the extreme leftism of uh, of the Trudeau family. And and I, I think the Whitlam visit was very similar. It was a, it was a snub to the United States, it was a snub uh, to, to our traditional allies in Britain and the like. Uh, and it, it definitely set Australia on a path which was going to prove interesting. I think it was not well conceived uh, and, it, and, it, and it showed, in a sense, a naivety of, of Whitlam in many respects, although the uh, Labour Party seems to venerate him as an intellectual god. Uh, it was proven that he was uh, a man with feet of clay when he, he attempted to circumvent the Constitution uh, and was dismissed by the Governor-General. Uh, Mr Albanese has also uh, suspended, if not abandoned, the action in the World Trade Organization against the breaches of international trade law by Beijing in relation to Australia. Considerable breaches, and I think we had an open and shut case there. I think it's disappointed a number of countries that we, we seem to have suspended or abandoned that. But when he went to Beijing, he didn't seem to get even crumbs from uh, Xi's no. table. What, what did he get out of it? Nothing worthwhile. Uh, but then what could he have achieved that was worthwhile, given the, the, the degradation of the mainland Chinese economy? Uh, I mean, mainland China is in desperate straits and... Uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping is, is himself in personally dire straits. He is under great threat. He spent a considerable amount of the past decade destroying his rivals in the Communist Party, only to find that he now must bear, as far as the party is concerned and as far as the Chinese public is concerned, he must bear sole responsibility for everything that goes wrong. And everything has gone wrong in the People's Republic of China. We see literally daily major areas of collapse in the, in the economy. We see major areas of protest by Chinese uh, people against the Communist Party. And this is profound because the penalty for protesting within mainland China is, is dire. Uh, this is not like going out and having a few drinks with your mate in the pub in Melbourne and uh, going to a Palestine protest. It's something far more serious because you know in China that your face will be captured on uh, internal security cameras. You will be identified. You will have a follow-up visit from security personnel and you could well find yourself dead or imprisoned. So what the Chinese people are doing is an act of extreme courage at this point and it's a sign as, as to just how frail the leadership of Xi Jinping is, as particularly as he's lost the uh, what was believed to be unequivocal support of the People's Liberation Army, uh, they will no longer follow him uh, in going into a major conflict situation, which is why I think Xi Jinping, when he goes, uh, and if he goes, to the APAC meeting in San Francisco uh, in a week, he will... Uh, try to come up with a face-saving agreement, which I'm sure Joe Biden will support, uh, to enable him to back down a little so he doesn't have to follow through on his bellicose threats to uh, take over the Republic of China and Taiwan. So that might seem like a great victory, but it'll be something which is merely done to, to save Xi Jinping himself from uh, internal reprisals within the country. And, and there have been attempts to assassinate him, we understand several attempts over the past year or so. What's the story about those leading officials, ministers, for example, I think the Minister for Foreign Affairs, who have disappeared, as they put it? Mm. Yes, not only the Minister of Foreign Affairs, but the Minister of Defence. And both 
of those officials were recent appointees by Xi Jinping himself. So it, it just shows the degree of instability there. Uh, he was looking for trusted people to put in positions of power, uh, and they have either let him down or he has become paranoid about them. And in, in fact, there's a, a great deal to suggest that uh, that both of those appointments, the foreign minister and the defence minister, uh, were flawed, flawed appointments. Uh, nonetheless, what we see is Xi Jinping now embarking on a major purge of the People's Liberation Army to the point where you would have to conclude that it would not be fit for a major military operation against Taiwan or to manage a threat from India or even Vietnam in the near future, let alone taking on, for example, Japan uh, in, in the East China Sea. So we, we've got a lot going on right now, and Xi Jinping is weak. Uh, what he hinted at and what the uh, Premier uh, of the PRC hinted at was uh, a softening of, of PRC embargoes on Australian on the purchases of Australian goods like barley, uh, lobsters and wine and the like. Uh, big deal, big deal. <laughs> the market there in China for luxury goods uh, uh, and products like that uh, is diminishing dramatically. You only have to look every day at the rising levels of unemployment, even by the official statistics, let alone the... Uh, the uh, evidence we see around uh, the country from Chinese netizens who are posting uh, pictures of unrest, of factories closing, uh, of, of people pouring in, uh, in their unemployment numbers onto the streets. We see the removal of a lot of foreign uh, companies, particularly Taiwanese, US, Japanese companies. They're, they're withdrawing from China. So the result is massive unemployment a collapse of the housing market, a collapse of local governments due to uh, an overburdening of debt. We're seeing the PRC in a, in a crisis in terms of debt servicing. So um, right now, it's highly unstable. The question is, what happens as a result of this? Does Xi Jinping attempt to do something desperate or does he attempt to concentrate his efforts on winning over the domestic population and dissidents within the Communist Party, uh, bearing in mind that what we're seeing uh, in the last six months, uh, increasing numbers of overt signs of criticism of Xi Jinping. This was uh, unthought of uh, a year or two years ago, uh, and now it's it's becoming very overt. And uh, this something is going to happen soon. And what we need to know really is that the decline is going to hit uh, Australian exports in the major areas of iron ore and, uh, and other minerals, uh, as well as foodstuffs. So it's 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 getting critical. Yes, uh, mainland China does have some foreign exchange reserves, and they will need to spend a lot of that on imported food. Whether that comes from Australia or not is uh, open to question, because Australian food exports are, are at the high end, and they're looking to get low end. Uh, food from Brazil and South Africa and the like, as well as, of course, the the, the great good fortune they have in getting uh, grain stocks and other food from Russia. I mean, that's why in March last year, I said that the Ukraine war saved the Communist Party of China because it forced Russia to find new markets very quickly for its energy and its food. And that was going to be the People's Republic of China, which was then able to cut back on its imports of US soybeans and other agricultural products uh, and make itself less dependent uh, for, for survival for food on the United States. Do you, do you see some parallel between what is happening with the army and how Stalin had those major purges of the Red Army just before the Second World War. Is that a similar sort of reaction of a, a dictator who is becoming very wary and suspicious of what is happening around him? You could even say paranoid, just as Stalin was 
clearly paranoid at various stages. Uh, but we, we have that added component with Xi Jinping is that his background uh, as an alcoholic. He, uh, there's a long history uh, of evidence of him engaging throughout his career uh, from an early stage uh, in pr pr prolonged drinking bouts. Uh, and he's still very much committed to a policy of alcohol uh, use as part of the bonding sessions within within the Communist Party leadership. So uh, this makes him like Lieutenant General Leopoldo Galtieri, who in 1994 started a war with Britain over the Falkland Islands. Uh, and this was a, the decision of a, of a paranoid alcoholic who was about to be thrown out of office and decided to undertake a very rash move uh, to try to save his presidency. It didn't save his presidency. He underestimated the response. Uh, and the question is, will Xi Jinping attempt something similar, a Galtieri moment, or will the People's Liberation Army stop him from doing that? And if they do, then what happens to the country? Uh, does the, the PLA become a more dominant feature within the Communist Party? Uh, so it becomes not just uh, the the army of the party, but the party becomes uh, a cat's paw for the for the military. I mean, may, may go back then to uh, a warlord type of situation as we saw uh, in uh, Mao Zedong's era, and that was Mao's big problem to to bring the PLA under control and to stop the regional warlords from acting as though they were sovereigns in their own right. Um, so it, there are a lot of problems coming up. And the question is, uh, what what will the PLA or, sorry, or the Communist Party of China do in this instance? Uh, do they dare to cut back on military expenditure? Do they dare to stop uh, supporting some uh, programs of food relief and the like for the population? Because at any stage, the, the balance could be tipped and uh, Xi Jinping, as I think we've discussed before, uh, is highly conscious of the fact that the whole movement against the imperial uh, throne uh, after the Dowager Empress died in 1908 was uh, based on uh, unrest in the cities by rural workers who'd come to the city and not been able to find work. And that was at a time when 5% of the Chinese population was urbanized. Today, it's over 67% of the population which is urbanized, and we've got unrest and unemployment on a vast scale. You could argue that half of the Chinese population is unemployed or, or effectively unemployed, because the statistics, which are absolutely not to be believed, in any event, only cover urban populations. They don't even cover the rural population. Of China, so you've got the situation where the unrest could reach unpredictable levels and could be ignited fairly quickly, especially so recently after the hopes of the Chinese people were built up by consumerism and by what appeared for a while to be easy money. Is there any parallel between what happened to the Japanese economy and what is happening to the Chinese economy? Well, that, that's been suggested, but I think we're not seeing uh, this sort of stagflation which hit the Japanese economy. Uh, we're seeing something far more profound and, and by the way, far more uh, basic. It's a total collapse of the economy. Uh, what uh, Xi Jinping had hoped to do was to uh, digitize the economy to such an extent that it could control, that he could control the population, saying, well, we, you know, if you... Uh, are socially unfit. In other words, if you oppose the Communist Party, we will make sure that you, you can't spend any of your money, you can't buy a bus ticket, you can't buy food or whatever. Um, that's essentially going by the board now because it doesn't matter. There's no money to go around. People don't have jobs. They can't pay their mortgages or rent uh, and they can't buy enough food. Starvation, as with the, uh, the, the Maoist uh, cultural revolution period is now rampant and we're going to see uh, the impact of that over the next couple of years and we've talked about that 
even as long as, uh, as a couple of years ago, but nobody's been paying attention because people like Mr. Albanese seem to think that China, 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 this is where we're going to get our money. No, we're not. Mm. That's not going to happen. Uh, we're going to have to find diverse markets. Yes. Just on that, uh, one of the matters which uh, Mr. Albanese is supposed to have got uh, good results was the reopening of international education. International education, as you know, seems to, in effect, be a form of uh, collecting money in return for international migration. It seems to cover up migration, and they're doing a similar thing in relation to India. We have a massive number, I think over 600,000 people coming in this year and is creating enormous yeah. problems in Australia. At the same time, it's, uh, it also has the advantage that it keeps the GDP improving totally. Mm. But of course, the amount per person is getting smaller and smaller, apart from the disadvantages of such large numbers of people who are moving and basically to Sydney and Melbourne. But is this going to work? Is, is, is Mr Albanese going to get uh, high fee paying or many more high fee paying Chinese students coming into Australia, do you think? Well, if the Chinese government allow people out of the country, it will be largely people trying to get their children and families out of China uh, pretending to go somewhere to study, not just to Australia, but uh, to other countries as well. Uh, and this will be basically a, a, a disguised form, if, as you say, of migration rather than an educational situation. Yes, there'll be an initial benefit to Australian educational institutions because if they're going to pretend to become a student, they're going to have to you know, sign up with the various university courses. But What's happening really is that there are fewer and fewer people able to get their money out. They're getting desperate to get their money out. Uh, people are being imprisoned every day, even for trying to move money out of mainland China into the Hong Kong region, preparatory to getting it right out of, of uh, China altogether. Uh, so it's, it's becoming increasingly difficult. Uh, so the numbers won't be great. So the, the, still, the still, there are still strong internal controls between uh, the mainland and Hong Kong, notwithstanding the fact that uh, they seem to have abandoned all of the promises that they gave about keeping a separate system correct. in Hong Kong. That's tragic, yeah, that, isn't that's it? That's absolutely correct. It's tragic and it's something which uh, was foreseen. Um, nobody, including the British government at that time, uh, wanted to look at the truth of what was going to happen to the poor residents of Hong Kong uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, and the British were anxious to wrap up the problem, move, up, move along, uh, and they left the Hong Kong residents to their fate, some of whom were able to get to Britain. But the reality is that Hong Kong has lost all credibility now as a, a, a genuine free market and democratic corner of, uh, of the Chinese uh, mainland. So that, that's gone. But um, well, what, do you what think we're the, seeing is If that, I could interrupt you, what do you think the British should yeah. have done when the lease uh, of the well, new territories was running out? Well, there was the, the great uh, cry that if you lose the new territories, uh, the lease on that, you, you, you don't get sufficient water for, the, for Kowloon and Hong Kong. Uh, therefore, it was unsustainable. The reality is with technology which was available even then, uh, there were ways to have resisted that. Uh, but it would have been at a significant cost. But there would have been significant benefits for Britain too. Uh, Britain, however, had by that point lost much of its prestige and credibility and was in no way ready to confront or have the confidence to confront the People's Republic of China, which then, as now, engaged in this wolf warrior diplomacy, <clears throat> for want of a better word. It was, it was full of bluster and threats, and Britain felt it couldn't respond to that, uh, so it just um, quietly you know, folded up the flag and went home. 
uh, unfortunately seeing that with it the last voyage of that other element of British prestige, the Royal Yacht Britannia, which was on, it was saw its last voyage taking Prince Charles back from Hong Kong to Britain. And, and this was at a time when the British government, uh, hand-wringing in the Harold Wilson style, although it was after Harold Wilson, uh, was uh, failed to understand that prestige is the credit rating of nations. Prestige is what gives you the ability to face down your adversaries and to make your will dominant. And the British did not even attempt to do that. Uh, we are seeing with the, the present government of post-Brexit Britain, some attempts to rebuild the stature and uh, and long-range goals of Britain, and that's to be commended. Uh, but they, uh, it's not been thought about consciously, perhaps by anybody other than King Charles himself, who is very conscious about manoeuvring Britain into a position of uh, greater prestige. Just on uh, King Charles, and I'm glad you, you brought the king up, there are a number of conservatives who are highly critical of King Charles in relation to any comment he may make, anything he may do in relation to climate change. And in fact, he is going to the next uh, COP meeting. I've forgotten where it is, uh, uh, but he's going there, he's going to speak there, he's going there with the approval apparently of the British government but what I say to people who, who are critical of him, well, he has different views. I agree with him fully, for example, on architecture and generally on the environment, but I don't agree with him on climate change, but uh, I agree with him on the language and the fact that he has different views from, what, from somebody like me is of no consequence. But I would say that in relation to climate change, the position as king, if he takes a position, for example, going to COP, he would not have the opposition of any government, of any of the realms of which he is king, nor probably of the leaders of the opposition of any of those countries. In fact, the only person, the only prominent political leader in the world who's taken a position against the theory of man-made climate change is, uh, I think, uh, Donald Trump, when he, he decided that he would withdraw from the Paris Accords. But most other politicians go along with mm. that theory and with the, the alleged consequences of that theory. I don't agree with it, but I don't think no. uh, Prince Charles can really, King Charles can really be criticised for doing what he is doing uh, as a as a constitutional monarch. No, and uh, I think it's worth bearing in, point, in mind a, a couple of points. The first one is that the climate change uh, religion has has almost certainly peaked and is becoming of less consequence to voters around the world simply because. People are worried about their income, their retirement, their ability to put food on the table, to pay their mortgages and the like. And what's happened, and we saw this in the election before last in Australia, where uh, the, the climate change argument was thrown under the bus when Labor at that point said that it was going to result in increased energy prices in Australian homes. Uh, and they immediately took their vote away from the Labor Party and gave it to the coalition at that time. Uh, now, uh, so the you can make the first argument that the climate change religion is starting to take a second seat, a back seat uh, in, in politics. Uh, and we saw the this in the we saw this incidentally in the speech from the throne that uh, the king recently read when he opened parliament yeah. where he announced that the government was relaxing certain aspects of uh, attempting to reach some level of uh, zero emissions. Mm. Well, that's right. That, but that's, that was the policy of the Rishi Shunak government rather than the king himself. Oh, yes. But the king, is also, yeah, the king is also highly aware of the fact that traditional religions have diminished in their appeal to most of the countries in the Commonwealth and in Britain itself. 
this is a very significant thing because it's very difficult to have a monarchy which does not have the blessing of a traditional religion. And if the traditional religion moves from the Abrahamic uh, religions or, and Christianity in particular uh, in Britain, where does he go? He has to look at the religion which affects most of the population, whether uh, ignorantly informed or not. And the one of the current religions is this populist climate change dogma. Uh, so uh, it, it's done the king's reputation an enormous amount of good in that he doesn't appear to be uh, an old-fashioned uh, monarch in the sense that he was relying on on the protection of um, of God and the church to save his position. He's seen as being able to accept the thoughts of the younger generation. And as I say, I think that that religion of climate change, whilst it's, it's still strong among many of the young, is going to fade dramatically over the next year or two and has already done so in many respects. A climate change, for example, in this latest round of, of elections in the states in the United, in the United States uh, just yesterday, uh, didn't play a role uh, climate change. What what was the the new dogma there was um, the the perceived threat that the Republicans were going to ban abortions. So that became the the new uh, you know momentary dogma. But climate change receded from that debate altogether. So King Charles, in a sense, uh, has his finger on the pulse of the irreligious or non-religious or agnostic area of the population which believes uh, in these fleeting and transitory uh, populist dogmas. Uh, so he's able to not alienate the younger members of the electorate. And I think that's actually a very key point in his attempt to make the monarchy more dynamic and more active. Um, at the same time, he has proven that he is also a very powerful friend to the traditional religious groups, particularly Christianity, but also uh, to Judaism and the like. So uh, even and Islam. So he's, he's actually straddling two horses at the moment in, in, in the sense of gaining the credibility uh, and the approval, if you like, of the, of the old and the new religions. Um, just, ju um, just a thought. And yes. just to say, by the way, that, that as, really, as Mr. Uh, Albanese... Is, please continue. That, uh, uh, that situation... Yes, and we're going to come to that, I think. Uh, we've just had, as you know, a referendum in Australia which was a, a disaster from the point of view of the government, considering the efforts they put into it, and the result was uh, overwhelmingly the people voted against it, and in many ways the, the sort of people who voted for it were very similar to those in the 1999 Referendum. It was really the elites against the rank and file, and the the rank and file triumphing. Uh, the government had had suggested, or at least ministers had suggested, that if there were a substantial victory in the voice referendum, they would then be proceeding to a second referendum on the republic. Where do you think this puts yes. a second referendum on a republic? Well, I think that um, Mr. Albanese learned a very, very harsh lesson with the voice referendum. And if he goes for another referendum uh, on the Republic, he would suffer uh, at least an equal defeat. Uh, and I think that's now guaranteed. One of the things that the referendum shows, um, and as did the 1999 referendum, uh, it showed that the people, when asked a direct question and given the opportunity to have their, their voice heard on a question are very, very clear. 
what we saw is about 60% of the population uh, or just under 60% for the 1999 referendum and just over 60% for the uh, current referendum, so these people opposed the government. And it showed an innate conservatism in the Australian voter. And this has been constantly uh, mitigated and, and downplayed by the Australian parliamentary voting system, which is of preferential votes. This is a system which we now know absolutely does not represent the will of the people. We, we saw that in the primary vote in the last general election in Australia, the Australian Labor Party got less than a third of the primary vote. So less than a third of the public wanted the Labor Party in as their, as their first choice. And yet they are now governing the country as though they have a mandate. This was because the preferential voting system enabled secondary and tertiary preferences uh, to go to them uh, and tip the balance over the, uh, the, the coalition, which got, in fact, more primary votes than Labor. And we saw that when the referendum was, was a direct question to the people, no, no, uh, no uh, hedging on this, no ability to, uh, to have your vote somehow discounted, you got direct votes. 60% of the public rejected the government. And that's profound. This is, this is why uh, referendums by, generally by left-leaning uh, Australian governments do not get accepted because you, you're asking a question which you're going to get an answer directly from the voter. Uh, and that's not what you get in a general election with the preferential system. So I think it begs the question as to whether Australia must at some stage find a way to review its system of preferential voting in general elections because yes. it definitely doesn't represent the voter. Yeah, I, I think and, that is true. Course, that is true and uh, there are other factors. Uh, we don't have primaries, for example, as in the United States. Yes. We have pre-selections and the pre-selections of both parties to a great extent, not completely, but to a great extent, have been captured by party machines, power breakers who yes. put into parliament people who are loyal to them. And uh, it, it limits the ability of people to express their opinion when they're actually voting because they traditionally vote for a major party. But the other thing, I yes. think, with the, this, this is reflected in the preferential system, which then and negates the, the votes that people give to smaller parties. But uh, the, in addition, because of the High Court's de decision, I think in uh, 2010, it is easier to defraud uh, elections than referendums. And this occurs because the Howard attempt to close off the week during which there's a flood of uh, people getting onto the rolls without being properly checked. Uh, Howard introduced legislation, and it was in for a number of years, in which when the election is announced, the rolls close. Whereas the High Court insisted that the rolls be kept open for a week, and during that week, the electoral system is flooded with a tsunami of uh, in mm. attempts to enrol, and of course none of these are checked. They can't be checked. Uh, and uh, this is the way in which you can target seats where a very small number of votes could swing the vote, particularly with preferential yes. voting. You can't do that in a referendum. It's too big. You, you'd have to do it for a whole state. You have, well, the, the principal electorate for a referendum is the whole country. But then you get mm. six electorates as big as the states, and it's very hard to rush in a number of additional fake enrolments to swing an election. So Correct. electoral fraud is much more difficult in those. But you're absolutely right. This, this means that the Australian people are being cheated in terms of elections because they're not get, getting the governance they want. And uh, Yes, and... The, the result of this last referendum 
was of such a scale that in a in a society where people were not uh, uh, afraid of uh, well, where embarrassment was still possible <laughs> in politicians, uh, the prime minister should have resigned, or at least offered his resignation and gone for uh, a, a re-election within the party. But he didn't. What he did was he immediately embarked on what he called a state visit to the United States. And by the way, it wasn't a state visit because he is not the head of state. Mm. And yet the Americans, uh, not knowing anything about protocol, called it a state visit. Uh, and, um, and and this was all about f- saving face. It was moving on from the disaster of the referendum. Mm. And then in order to, uh, to, to balance his electorate at home, his left-wing urban electorate, he had to go to Beijing as well. And what did these uh, visits achieve? Nothing of a great statesman-like uh, quality. Uh, yes, we are seeing progress with AUKUS, uh, and that's likely to lead, I think, soon to the introduction of New Zealand under the new government as another member of AUKUS, which I think will be very beneficial. But what we're seeing is um, Albanese, like Biden, uh, kowtowing to Beijing because the, their immediate belief is that that China is a major player in the world. It's a major player in the sense that it's unstable. That makes it very dangerous and unpredictable. But it's not a major contributor at this point going just on, forward to yes, Australia or the United States. Yes, just on that point of what one should have done, what, what Mr Albanese should have done, when he so significantly lost the referendum, wasn't it, uh, wasn't it a fact that uh, when the Brexit referendum was lost, didn't the proponent of that then resign? The Prime Minister who... Um, oh, yes, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, uh, Cameron, that's, that's right. And uh, he was a Conservative Prime Minister. Yes. And he, uh, he'd made the bold claim that he would resign if, if uh, the referendum did not favour... Uh, the Remain camp, mm. and it didn't, and he did resign. And uh, yes, it's absolutely the case that Prime Minister Albanese, had he had a shred of honour, uh, would have resigned. And he waited. Uh, or at least he, fallen yes. on his sword in some way. And he waited that referendum, the, the, the yes case, heavily. Mm. Yes. And uh, well, <laughs> even was, more reason to resign, I would have thought. But, uh, yes, because it was unconscionable to have a, a referendum and then to have the government using its weight and, and money, uh, the taxpayers' money, to try to sway the argument. Yes, and within a few days when, when uh, the opposition under Senator Price, who is Indigenous, from the Northern Territory, when she moved in the Senate, yes. that there be a royal commission into child abuse which is out of all proportion, if child abuse can ever be in proportion, but the, the amount is extraordinary in the remote areas, and also yes. for an audit of the enormous amount of money, the billions that have gone into the mm. remote areas without any, any indication, any, any sign that this has improved conditions in the remote areas. Mm. And the government immediately yes. used its numbers to block that which showed that mm. uh, their, their, their argument that had the voice got up, it would have then resulted in measures being taken to close the gap, was completely untrue, yep. and they, they must have known it was untrue. Uh, and the, also the argument that the High Court, the High Court having received the, uh, the voice, having had to consider the voice, wouldn't have given it uh, all sorts of meanings which we just didn't expect has been answered, I think, yesterday when in Australia the, the High Court has decided that uh, even the most the people who have committed the most serious of crimes, this included uh, child sexual abuse, where a person uh, is held in custody by the government, the person, is being, person being foreign, being apparently stateless because they can't return him anywhere, the High Court has said it's uh, unconstitutional to hold that person indefinitely. Is that person, notwithstanding the fact that uh, he's a significant risk to children, must be released? And 
the, the High Court is, uh, is unpredictable, except that you will expect that he, the, the decisions it gives will surprise everybody. Yes, you've got a situation where the, the legal system has lost touch with common sense. We have government now, not just in Australia, but in the United States and Canada particularly, where the government has lost any sense of uh, honour and dignity and nobility. And the, these are the three factors which make societies viable, uh, is having honour, dignity and nobility at the top so that it can be reflected down through society, so they can inspire, encourage, and basically uh, give people the sense that they can trust their government, trust their neighbours, trust themselves. Uh, and this is all gone now. Uh, we've seen that in Australia. And it's, it's a free-for-all uh, in Australian politics right now, as it is in the United States, uh, and, it, and particularly in Canada, where you've got massive suppression of uh, the popular will. Yes, uh, and uh, just to take you a little away from uh, this, you write, do you not, that Hamas will be the beneficiary, Hamas will profit from the terrible things that are going on in the Middle East, in Israel? Well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure that Hamas will. I think Hamas were induced to take these oh, steps because that. of the support... Yes, because of the support that they were given by Beijing. Uh, there's no question that Beijing opened new areas of liaison uh, with Hamas in middle of, of this year uh, and started pushing Hamas to do certain things. Uh, there's a, a two-star general in the PLA who re reports to Xi Jinping on the progress of the Hamas situation and has been doing so since before the conflict began on October the 7th. Uh, yes, the, the, the Palestinians generally had two reasons why they would use this particular time to break out. Uh, one was the 50th anniversary of the October 1973 war, uh, which Israel was celebrating as 50 years of peace. And of course, for a lot of Palestinians, uh, they didn't see the benefit of that. The second was, of course, that the Abraham Accords, as they were expanding to include Saudi Arabia, was uh, something which was going to push the Palestinians and their cause to the margins. Uh, and also it was going to strengthen the Saudi-Israel link, which would essentially jeopardise the security of Iran. So you had... Uh, that, that that being a, a, a real factors in why a, a, a Hamas would have done something. But they wouldn't have done something on this massive scale, so professionally planned and organised, so well equipped uh, that they, that we've never seen this scale before. Now, uh, the Iranians were at great pains to make sure that they were not seen as the primary drivers of the of Hamas's breakout, um, even though they benefited from it. But the, the, the reality is that the clerics in Tehran don't want to see an, an attack on Iran itself because Iran is just getting into uh, a better strategic position because it's now an integral part of Russia's uh, international north-south transport corridor, which starts in St. Petersburg, goes down the rivers through Moscow to Astrakhan on the north of the Caspian, down through Azerbaijan and Iran to Bandar Abbas and then over to India. This is a massive economic corridor. Uh, it's the success of Russia in the great game, which finally gave Russia access to the warm waters of the Indian Ocean. So this is profound. So Iran does not want to disturb that. On the other hand, People's Republic of China does want to disturb the West's growing concern about war in, in the Indo-Pacific and war against uh, Taiwan and, uh, and so on. So the People's Republic of China wants wars in the Euro-Atlantic zone, the, the Ukraine war, the Hamas-Israel war, because this is keeping massive Western defence assets out of the Indo-Pacific. 
We've got two U.S. carrier strike groups in the eastern Mediterranean, nuclear submarines. We've got British naval elements in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, the Chinese are also trying to get the Argentinians to uh, renew their assault on the Falkland Islands because that would tie up both British carrier strike groups uh, in the Atlantic and away from the Indo-Pacific. So, so Beijing has had a very heavy hand in this Hamas-Israel conflict at this time. Now, there's a price to pay for that for Beijing because Israel had been providing a lot of impressive technology to mainland China, and that now will probably cease. Is it uh, fair to say or reasonably accurate to say that there is a Beijing-Moscow-Tehran axis, as there was in the Second World War, of uh, similar uh, countries which were very much organised against the West? Uh, yes, it's, it's quite different now. You've got a situation where you've got um, tacit or, uh, or expedient alliances between Beijing and Moscow, bearing in mind that the leaders and populations in both those countries hate each other. The population of Iran and the Iranians hate the Russians. The Russians hate the Iranians. Uh, the Russians hate the Turks. The Turks hate the Russians. The Turks hate the... Uh, Iranians and so on. So you've got this whole complex within this new block of nations held together only by uh, expediency and by the fact that they were forced by the US to seek new markets. Uh, because the US placed such strenuous uh, embargoes and constraints on Russian government and Russian individuals and the like, uh, they had nowhere to sell their goods, so they created new markets amongst themselves uh, and also within the BRICS uh, group of countries and the like because they needed new markets and, and, uh, and, and they could now do this. So we, we saw that you know, literally the start of the new Cold War began with the Biden administration coming in and basically uh, threatening Russia at that point. Uh, it, it's been going on for some time before that with the Obama administration as well. But it basically, uh, you, you've ca caused a re-division of the world in, into a, bi a bipolar world, if you like. But it's very different from the, the Cold War that we saw uh, from 45 to, to 90. Um, and uh, e even if you look at the, the linkages and uh, in the 30s uh, between Moscow and, and Peking and Tokyo at that time, um, th th that was full of uh, ambiguity, full of distrust, uh, full of breaches of all of those relationships uh, altogether. So, I mean, it was, uh, we're not seeing anything new here. We're seeing uh, agreements of expediency rather than durable long-term relationships. And this is why, for example, what made sense was the Kanzik Alliance, the Canada, Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom alliance, which would, would have basically created a global alliance. Well, that was uh, not to come about largely because of, you know, of the extreme leftism of the New Zealand and Canadian governments. So instead, we saw the creation of AUKUS, Australia, United Kingdom, United States alliance. Uh, and that's been very successful and will be even more successful uh, the, the submarine component, which started the alliance, uh, Australia getting uh, nuclear submarines, wanting to buy three to five U.S. Virginia-class uh, strike nuclear strike submarines, uh, that actually really triggered the the creation of the alliance. What it might what it might happen, what it might develop into, though, is that the alliance will take shape. Uh, it will include New Zealand at some stage, probably Japan. But Australia might well have to look at cancelling those orders for the US Virginia-class submarines because there's going to come a time within the foreseeable future when the Royal Australian Navy, which doesn't have an enormous budget, will be holding uh, one or more Collins-class submarines in operation, uh, several Virginia-class submarines, and one, one or more of the new 
uh, AUKUS N or um, the the new AUKUS class submarine, which is being built for Australia in the United Kingdom and later in Australia. So we might have three <laughs> classes of very expensive submarines, which we cannot afford to operate. So something is going to have to happen. Yes, and, and uh, the the logical answer is. is you're, you're so right. Cancellation of some of the, of the Virginias. Yes, the, the, we do seem to get ourselves into a terrible mess. We seem to also be in a situation at the present time when we cannot defend ourselves because of the way in which the politicians have mishandled the defence portfolio. Uh, I must thank mm -hmm. you very much. This has been a wonderful, wide-ranging uh, contribution to our understanding of what's going on in the world. And uh, we, it is wonderful to read you and to see you in Epoch Times, for example, from time to time. Thank you so much, Greg Copley. You have been very kind and generous to us once again. And we'll no doubt be coming back to you and asking you if you can do another program with us to keep us up to date. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. Thank, Thank you very much. And this is ADH. The program is Save the Nation. I'm David Flint, and the program is produced by Charlie Noble. And until next time, thank you.